Hello and welcome to the menu. Monocle's program on great food, drink and hospitality. I am Markus Hippi. In the next half an hour, we head to the Finnish Lapland, where a new generation of chefs and restaurateurs are making the region's food offerings more interesting than ever before. This city, uh, Rovaniemi, uh, has never had a proper bistro restaurant. With Gustav, we wanted to create modern bistro that uh, relies uh, on local ingredients. Then one of Australia's favorite broadcasters, Alice Zaslavski, shares her top tips for better cooking. So the joy of better cooking is really my call to arms for anybody who's ever felt like they don't belong in the kitchen, somebody that needs a permission slip to say, you belong here, you can be here, and every time you cook, you get better. We'll also meet one of Portugal's most innovative winemakers and get a dinner soundtrack recommendation too. All that in this episode of The Menu. Up first in the program, we cross over to the Finnish Lapland, where young chefs are transforming the region's culinary culture. Lapland has long been characterized by dull and uninspiring restaurants aimed at the hordes of international tourists. But in recent years, they have finally given way to modern bistros and fine dining establishments that draw on the region's rich and unique ingredients. Monaco's Helsinki correspondent Petri Purtsov reports from the city of Rovaniemi. Lapland has experienced a veritable tourism boom in recent years and attracts well over 3 million visitors each year, with the figure set to grow to nearly 10 million according to some estimates. At first the tourism boom had a somewhat detrimental effect on the local restaurant scene as the hordes of tourists were served lower quality bulk food and menus consisted of two or three stereotypical exotic dishes always prepared in the same way. For the locals, this meant that dining out was not an option as the restaurants were clearly aimed at the mass tourism market. Now this has started to change and young chefs, keen to leave their mark, have opened more ambitious restaurants that draw on the region's rich and unique produce. One of them is Gustav in Lapland's largest city, Rovaniemi. Since opening its doors in 2020, Gustav quickly made its way to the list of top restaurants in Finland and has become a favorite among locals and discerning visitors alike. I caught up with one of the restaurant's founders, Robe Kotila. With Gustav we wanted to create modern bistro that uh, relies uh, on local ingredients and uh, offers high quality cuisine, not just uh, tourist dishes. This city, uh, Rovaniemi, uh, has never had a proper bistro restaurant. Uh, but uh, after we launched Gustav, uh, we have uh, been fully booked most of the time. You know, we hired people who worked in restaurant in Helsinki and wanted to move to Lapland for work. Tourists generate anywhere between 70 to 80 percent of restaurant revenue in Lapland, and all the restaurants, Gustav included, must also cater to them. Uh, of course, uh, we offer classic Lapland. This is like salted reindeer, but we have our own way to make them and want to find new ways of cooking. My favorites include our reindeer tartar, uh, which is uncommon way to serve reindeer. People also la- really like our duck kimchi and miso dish, which is not something that you usually find in Lapland. 
Kotila tells me that it is both the locals as well as the tourists that have started to demand better food. Uh, restaurants cannot serve high-quality food if they have uh, like 300 customers. But we also see more and more tourists who demand uh, better food. But it's not easy to run high-quality restaurant in Lapland. People are not used to higher higher quality food, but that is slowly changing. You know, we created this restaurant for the locals. Uh, we wanted to give them a, a great bistro that is uh, open also outside of the tourist season. Very few people have contributed more to the restaurant culture in Lapland than Tero Mantukangas, who has trained many local chefs and currently works as the executive chef of Lapland Hotels, the region's largest hospitality operator. Young chefs have introduced a new modern way of cooking Lapland dishes. They often go to Helsinki first to learn the craft and then relocate back to Lapland. We have many examples of these kinds of small restaurants, such as Tapio in the town of Posio, or the restaurant that the chef Ansi Rihimaki launched at Puha after having worked in the One Michelin Star Olo in Helsinki, Annar in the town of Innari, or the Sky Hotel in Rovaniemi. These young chefs eschew stereotypical Lapland dishes such as reindeer stew and squeaky cheese and offer instead new ways of cooking new kinds of ingredients. He is convinced that Lapland has the potential of becoming a real food hub and much of it is due to the wealth of ingredients that this wild region of Europe offers. It's safe to say that Lapland offers some of the richest and most interesting, sometimes even a bit mystical, ingredients in the world. For instance, we have the northernmost Zander population in the world. Our most important ingredient is reindeer, which we use for dishes ranging from breakfast all the way to dinner and which has an amazing taste. We get king crab from the Arctic Ocean, as well as clams and fish. I would also like to highlight our native bird, willow grouse, which the Asian tourists in particular love. We also have lots of wild herbs, such as spruce shoot, arctic sweetgrass and birch leaves. And the Japanese tourists really love our matsutake mushrooms, which are comparable to truffles. For Monocle in Lapland, I'm Petri Burtsov. Thanks, Petri. You are with The Menu on Monocle 24. Let's next get an update on what the food and drink industry is talking about this week. Here is Monocle's Sophie Monahan-Coombs with the headlines. It's been announced that Noma's next pop-up will be in Kyoto. The celebrated Copenhagen restaurant will uproot itself next year and open in the Japanese city for a 10-week residency. The spring pop-up will span the cherry blossom season and Noma plans to make use of seasonal local vegetables during its time in the city of flowers. British lamb has been shipped to the US for the first time in over 20 years. Following approval from the United States Department for Agriculture, British farmers will now be able to access more than 300 million American consumers. It's said that the market will be worth approximately £37 million in the first five years of trade. 
And finally, a new fragrance line will bring together the worlds of fine spirits and luxury fragrance. Perfume house Maison Sichet is the creation of French spirits group Remy Cointreau. The first five fragrances from the brand have spent time maturing in Remy Martin's cellars in Cognac, inside small oak casks, and will be packaged in crystal perfume bottles decorated with gold. Thanks, Sophie. This is the menu on Monocle 24. Author and broadcaster Alice Zaslavsky won accolades around the world with her previous book, In Praise of Veg, and now she has returned with another release. The Joy of Better Cooking, Life-Changing Skills and Thrills for Enthusiastic Eaters does deliver what the book's title promises, as it's full of tricks that can make cooking a bit easier and the food a bit tastier too. Alice visited Europe from Australia recently, and that's when she spoke to Monocle's Tom Webb at Midori House Studio One. So much of uh, someone's joy is found in comfort and uh, in flying hours in the kitchen. And if you are the sort of person that grew up in a household where your nonna and nonna were cooking all the time or you see your parents cooking, it is a, a normal part of life and you feel comfortable there. Whereas if you didn't do that... How do you get on that train? So the joy of better cooking is really my call to arms for anybody who's ever felt like they don't belong in the kitchen, somebody that needs a permission slip to say, you belong here, you can be here, and every time you cook, you get better. Yeah, because I, I love eating and I think I'm a terrible cook and I'm also very time poor. So this really spoke to me and I can tell that you were trying to reach out to me. Tom, I, was... I wrote this for you. I'm so glad to meet you. <laughs> well, when working through a cookbook, there's often this pressure that when you're making the the idea of someone else, you're you're working towards someone else's tastes and expectations. And, and I felt like this didn't come across in this book. I am very acutely aware of what happens when you cook to somebody else's tastes or when you put that sort of pressure on yourself because my origin story in food is an experience of MasterChef Australia and, you know, that was six months of taking something that I loved to do and applying a really fearful, anxious lens onto it because I was cooking for the judges' tastes and the food never tasted the way that I wanted it to because I couldn't I couldn't actually convey that love, which is what I think makes food so joyous and pleasurable. So uh, I would really encourage anybody, even if they're cooking for their family, to cook for themselves first. And then you put things on the table to set your family up to win or your household. Salt flakes, cracked pepper, maybe some garlic powder, if you know that your family likes, or, you know, some chilli sauce, whatever it is, then the onus is on them to make it taste right for them. And if they're still complaining, why don't they get into the kitchen and cook it for themselves? Yeah, and, and I think that really came across in the imagery you used, and I know that's something that's very important in cookbooks, but... There were things that I, I didn't know that I wanted to cook or, or even eat, and then I opened up and then I was suddenly really wanting what I saw in the book, and that was obviously deliberate, I'm guessing. Very yeah. deliberate. I'm a very visual person and a very visual learner, so I wanted it to feel like you really wanted to reach in and grab the tray or the platter, and if you've got that motivation already, it's not, you know, it's just a hop, skip and a jump towards the kitchen to make it for yourself. 
What did, was there anything that you learned while putting this book together? Every day I learned new things. I actually started the ideation process as soon as I submitted the manuscript for In Praise of Veg. I started doing one-to-one interviews with people who called themselves bad cooks or said that they hated cooking. And that was really illuminating for me because we only know what we know and we've got one singular sort of lived experience and we assume that everybody thinks that way. It doesn't compute to me that somebody could see food as simply fuel. But there are people out there who feel that way. So how do I meet them where they are and move them towards an experience where food goes beyond just what they put in their mouths? You know, otherwise we'd all be drinking Soylent. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I want to give you a chance to mention some of your favourite recipes, but I want to mention mine first, which is the fried green falafels, something that I would never normally eat falafels. (gasps) They don't work for me. But can you tell me about this recipe and the story behind it? Sure. Oh, falafel is not falafel. The story behind this fried green falafel dish is that I was, I do a lot of hosting work, a lot of sort of live on stage and, you know, microphone stuff, just like you. And in this instance, I was hosting a community cook-along with different people from different cultures in this particular part of Melbourne, Clayton. And there was an Egyptian lady called Emmy who was standing off to the side with the smuggest look I have ever seen and I just thought who is this lady and why is she so smug and then when she got up on stage she said I'm going to show you the best falafel you've ever had in your life and I thought sure you know how good could it be Tom this was the best falafel I've ever had and her secrets even to the point where you blend the ingredients together in the the layers she was really sort of prescriptive you know you put the onions down first then you add the spices then you add the herbs half and half the chickpeas need to be soaked here's a tip do not use tinned chickpeas in a falafel because they will disintegrate lived experience there been there done that empirical evidence does not work What you can do, though, if you do need to cheat it, is if you haven't remembered to soak your chickpeas, you can cheat it by adding beeson flour back into a tinned chickpea because that gives you the right amount of starch to bind it all together. So Emmy's green falafel has so much herb action that they can't possibly be dry for you. And when you fry them off, so the outside is this gorgeous sort of burnished tan glistening, and then the inside is moist and fluorescently green and just so tasty and laden with spice and it's just as good cold as it is hot and you can put it in a pita, you can put it in a salad, you can take it to work and it will change your life. It'll change the way that you cook falafel forever. See, that's why it's my personal favourite. What is yours? Oh, it depends. Uh, It depends on my mood. It depends on uh, what I'm doing at the time. But if I had to pick one dish that really speaks to me and I've cooked about six times in the last couple of months, which shows you, you know, I've only got a finite amount of time in my kitchen at the moment, it's the excellent eggplant lasagna. I'm really proud of that lasagna because it's the sort of dish that if you've got somebody who's unwell or if you're bringing a plate to someone, if you want to show love, you bring lasagna. And this is the best lasagna that I've ever tasted. It, it teaches you how to make a really pillowy bechamel sauce, nutmeggy, cheesy bechamel. And then the actual, you know, it's a plant-based or, or at the very least it's a vegetarian lasagna. You can make it gluten-free. It still works. So it's very inclusive and very just flavoursome and it just gets better overnight. And this is another thing that I found so distinct about your book is that you do have these kind of bonus bits. You mentioned turning things to gluten-free. Can you explain that a bit more? 
I think that there's a lot of assumed knowledge when it comes to cooking that if you are jumping in halfway through the journey, um, you don't know, you don't really know the answers. And so what I've tried to do with the bonus bits is preempt the questions that a cook would ask me. So then when you turn over the page to the lilac bits, it's almost like you're choosing to dip in and ask me a question and I'm right there with you to say, this is how you do that. Or, hey, if you don't have this, then let's riff there. And, hey, if you've got some leftover this, then this is what you can do with it. So it's kind of, it's holding your hand and you can choose. Do you want me to hold your hand or pat your back or <laughs> bring you a cup of coffee? It's up to you. Yeah. And that includes food waste tips. What's your top tip? top tip. Uh, number one is have a stock bag in your freezer. So that goes for all of your tops <laughs> of uh, leeks. It, it goes for your peelings of your carrots. Uh, even onion skins can go in there. That's just something, it's almost like you need to set yourself little, set yourself up to win with little behaviour uh, nudges. So that bag, you know it's there, you can use it and then you just make your stock every now and then. Um, when I make stock, I freeze it down. So I reduce it down until it's sort of a third of the, of the liquid quantity and then I'll freeze it in those big kind of silicon cubes and that's my own stock cubes that I can use along the way. So it's kind of like at every point you can make more with less. Yeah, and that, that's really lovely. And it, it, you're not just a leading voice in food waste. You, you've also got some great tips on ditching plastic. Oh, Tom. Yeah, done my research. <laughs> can you share some sure. of those? Sure. Uh, I think the number one tip uh, is single-use plastic bags. You know, there is absolutely no reason to be using them. We should be having a bag. You know, I'm, I'm a bag lady. I've got bags on bags on bags. And uh, it just means that you are cutting out one thing that is completely unnecessary. Uh, if I, I grew up in the former Soviet Union. My parents used to wash plastic bags and reuse them. That was just the way it was. I think we have a very... Um, because we have so much abundance at the moment, it's really easy to kind of take for granted some of those... Uh, those resources that we just assume will always be there and also take for granted those conveniences that aren't actually that necessary and are actually in the end quite inconvenient. So ditching single-use plastic bags, having a water bottle that you bring along with you, that's two simple ways. And you don't need to pack every type of produce into a separate plastic bag at the shops. In fact, take a basket and just pop it in. You know, if you buy four oranges, that doesn't need a bag. Just take that out at the, at the register and they'll weigh them without a bag. And you'll save like 0.1 cents too. <laughs> so I'm going to surprise you again here as well. You've, you've spoken before about how food choices can be an accurate indication of personality traits. Can you draw that link for us right now? Of course I can. Why don't you tell me about yourself, Tom? No, we're not going to do it that way. <laughs> Let's use a case study from before. Okay. So um, I definitely, I, I like to think of myself as a little bit of a kitchen therapist and I can tell a lot about somebody, especially based on their aversions. And it is generational. So a lot of people, sort of boomers, can't stand Brussels sprouts because they were overboiled and under-seasoned. But if you're the sort of person who will continue to not want to try Brussels sprouts because you didn't like them as a kid, then that says a lot about how closed you are to other kind of experiences or other kind of um, limiting beliefs. So I would say if you if you had a bad time as a kid with a certain food, I'm really sorry that that happened to you. You need to kind of check back in with yourself and kind of have that conversation and say, your parents were doing their best. They actually thought that that was the way to nourish you. It wasn't. It was the way to put you off mushrooms for life. But that's not to say that you won't like mushrooms now and you owe it to yourself to cultivate FOMO 
and try them again. Love it. I'm so glad we didn't use me as an example there. But I do agree with everything that you said. Uh, so finally then, just closer to home, uh, how has Australia's restaurant scene been recovering after the pandemic and, and where is your year going 2022? Mm, the Australian restaurant scene has, has changed. It has shifted. I think that some chefs have used this as an opportunity to kind of regroup and reset and, and, and think about how they can have more sustainable systems, uh, have a more sustainable lifestyle for themselves and their staff. It's also meant that they've got value-add products. So we've got some really terrific small batch condiments coming out of some of the best restaurants in Australia. And what I'm really excited about is how much more uh, Australians are connecting with First Nations flavours and First Nations foods and, and producers as well. So that's what we're seeing on menus around Australia at the moment is people are using lemon myrtle and bunya nuts and, and wattle seed and th this will only continue and the demand will drive supply and, you know, ideally from First Nations businesses. Alice Zaslavsky there speaking to Monocle's Tom Webb. Alice's new book, The Joy of Better Cooking, is out now. Next up on the menu, it's time to turn our attention to Portugal and one of the country's most inventive winemakers, Dirk Nieport. Besides setting up the fifth generation of his family's port wine business, Nieport has blazed a path to create intriguing table wines from the Dura Valley and beyond in Portugal. Monaco's correspondent Ivan Cavallio caught up with Nieport at his cellars in Porto to learn the latest about his ventures. Founded in 1842, the Neoport Winery has been a prominent family business in Portugal's Douro Valley, making exceptional port wines and under the direction of current owner Dirk Neoport, remarkable still wines. I caught up with the talented Neoport in Porto at his new tasting room inside the company's cellars in Vila Nova de Gaia. Welcome to the temple. This is where we keep our precious wines uh, from 1863 to 2017. So here we have 1970 vintage port. Um, it is very special. I would say that our best vintage port is maybe 1945, but 70 was always special because of my father. It, it was one year that he really made the wine himself and um, he personally always liked it. I, I think today it's becoming clear that 70 as a vintage is really one of the best and it was not so famous in the beginning because of um, not being so fruity, not being so generous, and, but on the other hand it, it's a vintage with a lot of personality, very spicy, peppery and full of character and uh, it's obviously getting better and better and very good at this stage but um, I think in the next 20-30 years it will even get a lot better. And as a curiosity what would you like to, to serve with this port? Is it something to be enjoyed on its own or would you like it sometimes paired with, with something? Well um, the vintage 70 goes particularly well with uh, Stilton, the classic uh, cheese in general, all sorts of cheeses, even some softer cheeses, but of course the spicier Tom Conte um, are probably better, but uh, 
it's this classic combination. Well, not particularly with the old vintage board, with the young vintage board, like uh, 2019 or 17. Uh, there is a really magical combination. It's a young port with a vintage port for, with a pepper steak. It's um, the combination of the sweetness and the power of the port with the pepper changes the whole palette of the sauce and also of the wine. And suddenly what would become a monster, a young vintage port, becomes actually quite mellow and dryish and and it just works really, really well. Updating traditions and finding new pairings for port are important to Dirk Nieuport, who has pushed also to make more still red and white wines in the Douro to raise awareness of the rich collection of indigenous grape varietals found here. His aim is to get drinkers to reevaluate the region and, of course, appreciate the incredible heritage of port, fortified wines with amazing aging potential. Well, you know, port has a stuffy uh, image. Um, it's associated with winter and old men uh, and so on. But uh, I actually think the future of port is actually not really stuffy, so it can be a bit more modern, but I actually would like to see the port a bit more snobby. Uh, it's not a word I like, but let's face it, port is one of the best wines in the world and it's grown in a very difficult area under really difficult conditions. And I think we should show the world how difficult it is and make it rare. It's not for everybody and not for every day. It's, it's something which is very special. And next to that, we should, so we should reduce the quantity of port to make it a bit more snobbish. Uh, but at the same time, we have an area which is incredibly interesting because it's good for making fortified wines, but also white and red wines. And the tourism is very important. And so to complete the picture, I think we should snobbalize the, the port, make some of this white wines, some of this red wines, and bring the people to the door to see it. Some people call me visionary, but um, in reality, I just had to do some wine. Uh, so it was not a vision. It was just I wanted to play with the grapes from Doro. And I believe that north-facing vineyards, cooler vineyards, higher vineyards, uh, that are not particularly good for port should be really good for red wine. And so in 1990, I did the first wine, which we never sold. It's called Robustus. And I should not show it to anybody because it's, it's like a miracle. People think it's a fantastic wine. It is. But let's let them keep thinking that it is fantastic. Um, 91 was the first Redoma and 95 was the first Redoma white. So it's been uh, over 30 years now making wine. And uh, the wine side has become really important for us. Uh, today, I think we sell 20% port, 80% wine. Uh, having said that, the, we never dropped in quantity with the port. So we have been steadily growing. And particularly the last three years, uh, have been, we have been growing a lot in the port side. But the wine side has become really important for us. But the world at this moment, I think, is really getting fed up with uh, Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, Cabernet, Merlot. And what looked like unthinkable to sell uh, Portuguese varieties like Rabo do Velho, Toliga Nacional, and so on, um, is becoming exotic. So what was impossible to pronounce, people would run away and wanted something that they understood. 
And at, at this moment, I think Americans, um, not all Americans, of course, but uh, the world is, is looking for exotic things. So even if they cannot pronounce the name of the variety, even though they know this is 10 varieties, um, it's like I like to play with the game and people ask me, so what, what variety is this? And this is many. So, uh, and usually our wines are always made with autochthonous grape varieties and usually from old vineyards and they are co-planted. So there's many varieties in a given vineyard. And so uh, it's a bit messy. It's a bit difficult to communicate. But because the world is fed up with those common varieties, uh, it's they, people welcome things which are different. And and I think Portugal is the richest country in the world in that respect. Uh, we have 450 different varieties in Portugal. We have old vines, we have mixed plantings. And so I think the, Portugal is going to become a fashion. The wines have become... Neoport's efforts today seem investing in vineyards beyond the Douro. He now makes still wines in up-and-coming appellations, such as Daum and Bairada. The latter, an area he describes as having an amazing terroir, where he works with the Baga grape, as he continues his relentless drive to raise the profile of Portuguese wine. For Monocle, in Porto, I'm Ivan Carvalho. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we're back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday if you're listening in Los Angeles. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show, Food Neighbourhoods, for great recipes. And obviously, you'll find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. I am Marcus Hippi. Our studio engineer was Callum McLean. Once again, we finish this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Tuvalu with Grapefruit. Thanks for listening. Thank you.